Hi, I'm Walter Lane, and you've tuned in to a sermon podcast from the Netherwood Park Church of Christ in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Thanks for listening. Testament and all the ways in which the Old Testament anticipated and lead, led us to Jesus, the, the centerpiece of our Christian faith. And so this week, uh, we're going to look at how things look once Jesus came. The Old Testament anticipated that, and then Jesus arrived. And as you can see on the screen here, the title of our sermon is, Jesus Does It Better. When Jesus came to earth, he fulfilled a lot of different roles. He had a lot of different jobs, if you will. He did a lot of things. And in those roles, there are numerous areas where Jesus is superior than other people who filled similar roles and the other options that are available. So as I studied the the supremacy of Jesus or the superiority of Jesus and all the ways in which he was better than his counterparts, it started to make me think about some of the false claims of superiority that we often see. A lot of things and people want to claim to be superior when they're actually not. And so I took a a deep dive into the internet and I brought some examples today of what I think are some false claims of superiority. So if you'll bring up the first picture there. Here's a little invention, I guess, that I saw recently. And I guess the idea is that this fork makes it easier to eat spaghetti. There's a claim of superiority that this tool works better than its counterpart there. I'm not convinced this is a real problem in the first place. This is a pretty specific item. Uh, I'm not convinced that it's actually superior. I think that this is an example of a false claim of superiority. So I brought a a couple more. Let's look at the next one. Okay, this here is a cup holder, as you can see. And the cup holder is designed to clip onto a table. So maybe I'm missing something, but I'm not sure how... It's better to put it in the cup holder, clip to the table. How's that better than just setting it on the table itself? I think that this is a false claim of superiority. It's not actually better. I don't know why you spend money on that. Okay, last one. This one's probably the best one. It is what you think it is. This glove connects to your phone via Bluetooth. And there actually is a speaker on the thumb and a microphone on the pinky so that you can talk into your hand. So I don't think this is better. It's not better than gloves. And I don't think it's actually better than just your phone either. I'm not sure how it's different. Um, It's a false claim of superiority. This thing is not actually better than the items that it's trying to compete with. So in contrast to these false claims of superiority, Jesus 
makes claims of superiority that are actually true. Jesus truly is superior. So today we're going to look at three very specific and important roles that Jesus fulfilled in his coming and in which he was actually superior. So those three roles are prophet, priest, and king. Those are three jobs that Jesus performed when he came to earth, and he did them better than anyone else. And so if you guys are paying attention, Curtis, I've got to thank you. Your song selection was uh, right on today. Um, we, do a, we try to, to coordinate things, and if you pay attention, you'll see there's some good little nuggets spread throughout there. So prophet, priest, and king. None of these roles were new to Jesus in the sense that prior to Jesus, many people had uh, worked in these jobs. There were many prophets before Jesus, many priests, and many kings. <clears throat> so they weren't new in that sense. But when Jesus came, he did those jobs better than anyone before him. And even since Jesus ascended back to heaven, no one has been able to challenge his superiority in those areas. So here's kind of the plan for today. We're going to look at these three functions, and for each one we're going to establish what's the job, what does the person in that role actually do, and then we're going to take a look at how was Jesus superior in that particular thing. So this is not going to be an in-depth study of the roles of prophet, priest, and king. We're just going to kind of hit it at a high level, so keep that in mind. First one we're going to look at is prophet. So what exactly is a prophet? Last week, we we dove into that a little bit, and for today's purposes, I'm going to say that a prophet's job is to proclaim the word of God. You could say that they're God's mouthpiece. God inspires the prophets to deliver his words, his messages to the people. In addition to proclaiming the word of God, many prophets performed miracles. So you think back to the Old Testament, um, Elijah comes to mind, Elisha, Moses uh, performed miracles as part of their roles as prophets. So it's definitely true that Jesus was a prophet. For one thing, he did share the words of God. John seven sixteen. Jesus says, My teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me, that being God. So Jesus is sharing the words of God, just like a prophet. In addition, we do know that Jesus performed a lot of miracles. That's one of the most well-known characteristics about him. If you go back to the Old Testament and look in Deuteronomy, there's actually a prophecy about Jesus being a prophet. There it says uh, that God's going to raise up a prophet like Moses for the people, and that that prophecy was ultimately fulfilled in the person of Jesus. He was a prophet like Moses. There are also several places in the gospel where Jesus is referred to as a prophet. Luke 7 is one example. Jesus performs a miracle. He brings a young man back to life. He gives him back to his mother. And after that miracle, the people say in Luke seven sixteen, a great prophet has appeared among us. So clearly Jesus was a prophet, but he wasn't just a regular prophet, if there is such a thing. He was the ultimate prophet. So let's look a little more closely at, at that. How was he superior? In the Old Testament, we see some phrases that are repeated over and over to kind of introduce a section where we're going to see the words of God. And so, as one example, we see it happen a lot when the law is given to Moses. If you look at the book of Leviticus, 20 of the 27 chapters in Leviticus begin by saying, the Lord said to Moses. So it's this introductory phrase saying, the Lord said this, and then we see the words of God. And in a similar way with the prophets, we see a phrase repeated over and over and over where it says, the word of the Lord came to so-and-so, whoever the prophet is in that particular case. So Hosea 1.1, the word of the Lord that came to Hosea, son of Buri. 
or Isaiah 38.4, then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah. Micah 1.1 is the same. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Morasheth. There's many other places as well. There's this phrase that applies to the prophets. But interestingly, we don't see this phrase applied to Jesus as a prophet. So you've got to ask, well, why not? And I believe that it's because Jesus was a prophet on a different level, a higher level than all those that came before him. And we see that in John 1.1. We know this verse well. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And you skip down to verse 14. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So how is it that Jesus is better as a prophet? He's better in the sense that he didn't just proclaim the words of God. Jesus is the word of God. He is superior in every way to the prophets that came before. He was the word and he is the word still today. That makes him the best prophet of all time. Look at Hebrews chapter 1, starting in verse 1. It says, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. So Jesus isn't just a mouthpiece for God. Jesus is God in the flesh, and he himself is the word. So let's wrap up uh, this little section on the prophets um, with a little bit of application. The first thing that, that hits me, we should be students of the word, right? So we open up the scriptures and we dive into that and we try to learn something. And I want to say we cannot engage fully in scripture without engaging the help of Jesus as the word. He has to be an integral part of that study. There's something about Jesus that is going to help us truly soak in all that scripture has to offer us. The other thing that's exciting to me is that Jesus is alive. And I think, unfortunately, sometimes that idea is lost on us as Christians. Jesus is still living. He is a real person and alive right now. And so when we go to, to share the gospel, oftentimes... We act as if sharing the gospel is an act of sharing information. And in some sense, it is a sharing of information. But it's also sharing a person. It's introducing someone that you know to someone who doesn't yet know him. Jesus is alive. We have a relationship with him. And we should be introducing him to people that we know so that they also can form a relationship. And in that sense, we are then sharing the word ourselves. And we start to have kind of a prophetic, prophetic role ourselves. That's cool. Right? That we get to participate in that way. So to sum it up, Jesus is a prophet and he does it better than anyone else. You might even say that his work was very profitable. That's pretty good, right? All right, moving on. Yeah, thanks. thanks. Let's look at the next role of Jesus. Jesus was a prophet. He was also a priest. Let's dive into that. So to evaluate Jesus as a priest, we first have to understand what priests do. What was their job? Priests were set apart to take care of the tabernacle and later to take care of the temple and to, among other things, offer up the sacrifices that were prescribed as part of the law that God gave to his people. And so these sacrifices, they had some of them that were for themselves, but the majority of the sacrifices that were offered were offered on behalf of the people of God. 
So in that sense, the priests, part of their job was to intercede on behalf of the people and to bring people into the presence of God. And so this is kind of cool when you compare and contrast the role of priest versus prophet. If we go back to the idea of a prophet, a prophet's job was to take God and bring God to the people. He took the words of God and brought it down and gave it to the people. Priests, on the other hand, priests take the people of God to him. So prophets bring God to the people. Priests bring the people to God. The intercessory work of the priest is a really important aspect of what they did, and we're going to come back to that in a minute. So for our purposes today, the job of the priest was to offer sacrifices and to intercede for the people. A quick side note, when it comes to teaching, I think many of us usually associate the idea of teaching with the prophets, right? They were the ones who were sharing the word of God, and and that's partly true, but really priests also had a very important role in the teaching aspect of things, and uh, so we need to keep that in mind. It was a major responsibility for them as well. So we know what a priest did. Now let's see how Jesus himself was a priest. We're in Hebrews again, Hebrews 4.14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. So this is saying Jesus, the Son of God, is our great high priest. As I just said, one of the primary functions of priests was to offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. And we definitely see that in the person of Jesus. In the Old Testament, the priests would sacrifice animals. They would offer up lambs and bulls and and things along those lines. But in contrast, Jesus, as our great high priest, he offered a sacrifice that was much greater than any animal. Jesus himself is our perfect sacrifice. He submitted to dying on the cross and interceded for us. He didn't offer up some animal. He didn't offer up a bull. He offered himself. And so in that sense, he is superior to all the priests that came before him. Along the lines of this uh, intercession type idea, I want to take a little diversion to talk about something I think is really important. The word intercede has a Latin root that basically means to go between. So when someone intercedes on behalf of someone else, they're essentially stepping in between two parties to act as a mediator between them. And the Bible has a lot to say about this idea of intercession. In James chapter 5, verse 16, it commands us, Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. So when we pray for someone, we call that intercessory prayer. You're interceding on behalf of that person. And I think that as Christians, we really underestimate the power of intercession, the power of interceding on behalf of others. And so to illustrate that, let's look at an amazing story of intercession that comes to us from the Old Testament. In Exodus 32, Moses is up on Mount Sinai with God, and the people are are down below, and they're getting a little bit antsy. They're getting nervous. Moses has been up there for a while. They're not totally sure what's going on. But at this time, they're just right in the middle of establishing this covenant with God. God is giving them the law. The priests are getting ordained. They're getting instructions for how they're supposed to build the tabernacle. All of this is very, very fresh. God has just led them out of slavery in Egypt, and he's establishing this new type of relationship with them. In the midst of all this, again, they're getting nervous. They're wondering, where's Moses? And they have this temptation to go back to what's comfortable for them. They have a temptation to kind of um, be more like the the nations that they'd been exposed to at that time. And so what do they do? They 
an idol in the form of a golden calf so that they can worship him. They commit idolatry in the midst of this new covenant. So God is justifiably angry, and that's probably an understatement. Read in Exodus 32, verse 9. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. So God's saying he's done with Israel. He has reached out. He's made himself available. He's trying to establish this new relationship, and they're just totally taking that for granted, totally turning their backs on him and engaging in this thing that's the opposite of what God has asked. And he tells Moses, I'm just going to wipe them out. Me and you, Moses, will start fresh. I will make you into a great nation. This is a really big deal. Earlier in Exodus, it says that there were 600,000 Israelite men that left Egypt in the Exodus. So when you add in the women and children, that's just the men, 600,000. When you add in the women and children, that number easily exceeds 1 million. And in fact, most estimates put the number of people that left Egypt in the Exodus over 2 million. So this is 2 million people, an entire nation, that God is threatening to wipe out because of their unfaithfulness to him. And what happens? Moses steps in and he intercedes on behalf of this nation. Pick it up in verse 11 here. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people, whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Listen to this, verse 14. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. What an incredible story. Moses interceded, and it worked. His intercession on behalf of this nation of people moved the heart of God to not bring about the disaster that he had threatened. One man interceded and saved the lives of millions of people. Talk about power in that interceding, in that act. And what's really crazy is that the the intercession that Moses did is nothing in comparison to the intercession of Jesus on our behalf. Jesus interceded for us And we are all saved by it. Romans 8.34. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. That's the ultimate act of intercession. So the main point that I want to make in going through this story and talking about this is that there is so much power when you intercede for someone. When you fight for people. That is a gift that God has given us to be able to do that for one another. And so I don't want to discount the need for personal responsibility or personal repentance whenever someone's facing a hard time or they've engaged in sinful behavior. But this is such a powerful gift that we need to be interceding on behalf of other people. So I just want to ask, are we praying for one another? Are we offering up that intercessory prayer? Husbands, are you praying for your wives and interceding for them? Wives, are you praying for your husbands? Are we praying and interceding on behalf of our kids and our friends and our coworkers? God knows our coworkers need prayers, right? That leads me to another powerful truth. We talked earlier about 
the job of intercession is part of the priest's duties, right? The, the priests intercede on behalf of the people as part of their core function. Did you know that the Bible tells us that all Christians are priests? So in our very rules, in our titles, it's part of the job. 1 Peter 2.9 says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. Did you hear that? A royal priesthood. A holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So in the past, it was just a select few people who could be priests. God designated the tribe of Levi, and there's uh, very formal things around that. <clears throat> and that the only way that people could truly access God was through these priests. But all that changed with Jesus, because he wasn't just any old priest. He wasn't a normal priest. Because remember, Jesus does it better, doesn't he? Jesus is our great high priest. Before, it was only the, the, the high priest that could enter fully into the presence of God, which at the time was represented by the Holy of Holies, the most holy place in the tabernacle and in the temple, in that interior area. And he would only do that very occasionally. But listen to this, because things have changed. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body and since we have a great priest over the house of God let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water did you hear that we have confidence we don't just get to enter the most holy place we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus Jesus was and is our great high priest, and he does it better than anyone else ever could. Hey, good job. You guys still with me? We're two-thirds of the way there. So we've talked about Jesus as a prophet. We've talked about Jesus as a priest. And now let's talk about Jesus as a king. So once again, what is the king supposed to do? What's the job of a king? Deuteronomy chapter 17 gives us some guidelines for how God intended the king to operate. <clears throat> Deuteronomy 17, verse 18 says, When he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from that of the Levitical priests. So think about that. When someone becomes a king, he was actually supposed to write himself his own copy of the law. That's awesome. And keep in mind, too, this is in Deuteronomy. So this is well in advance of the monarchy even being established for Israel. So God you know, had the foresight to see, hey, this king thing is coming, and he's giving these guidelines now, years before a king would be established for Israel. Okay, verse 19. It is to be with him, his copy of the law, and he is to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord, his God, and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees, and not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites. You hear that? The king, verse 20, is not to consider himself better than his fellow Israelites and turn from the law to the right or to the left. Then he and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel. So what's the job of the king? I'm kind of simplifying here. But the king is supposed to follow the law, be an example of following the law, and he was supposed to serve the people. He's not better than them. He's there to serve them. So to understand Jesus as a king, we've got to kind of start back a little while ago. When David was king of Israel, God made him a promise that one of his descendants would sit on the throne forever. 
we learn a little bit more about Jesus as a king from the prophecy in Isaiah and other places. So let's look at that one. You may remember, last week we looked at this very prophecy. Isaiah chapter 9, starting in verse 6, says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. We like to give the Jews a hard time about the kind of king they anticipated, saying, oh, they they expected this earthly king, but that's not who Jesus was. But when you look at a prophecy like this, it's not hard to understand why they thought what they did. It says, the government will be on his shoulders He's going to reign on David's throne. He's ruling with justice and righteousness forever. I don't think it was a completely unreasonable thought to think that he was going to come and establish a kingdom, but they were, in fact, missing it. <clears throat> Later, uh, in Luke chapter 1, verse 32, the angel Gabriel's talking with Mary, and he says this about Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom, that's Jesus' kingdom, will never end. So clearly Jesus was and still is a king. But he wasn't just a king. He was the perfect king. We have lots of examples of earthly kings, both in the Bible and outside the Bible, but none of them compare to our Lord because he does it better. So reminder, what was the job of the king? He's supposed to be an example of following the law, and he's supposed to serve the people. And so when we look at Jesus... He stands in contrast to most of the kings that we read about in the Bible. He did it better because he had no sin. He followed the law perfectly, and he was a humble, perfect servant. Building on this idea of Jesus as a king, Revelation chapter 17, verse 14, talks about Jesus. It says, They will wage war against the Lamb, the Lamb being Jesus, But the Lamb will triumph over them, because he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And with him will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. That particular title, Lord of lords and King of kings, is an interesting one. It means that Jesus has ultimate authority. No one can challenge him. He is the perfect king. And what's cool is one of the ways that we benefit from the kingship of Jesus is that we're part of the royal family. Remember that verse from 1 Peter earlier? It says we are a royal priesthood. So it's kind of cool. Like, we can all puff our chests up a little bit. We're all in the presence of royalty here today. Do you feel kingly and queenly? You guys look good. You look like royalty. That's exciting. We get to benefit from that part of Jesus. I did mention he was a different kind of king than what the Israelites expected. They expected someone to kind of follow in the footsteps of all the kings they had seen before. And that's not really what Jesus did, is it? He famously told Pilate that his kingdom is not of this world. And what I think is really interesting about that, listen to what he did not say. When he says, my kingdom is not of this world, he didn't say, my kingdom is not in this world. His kingdom is very real and it's very present, but it's not of this world, so it's different. And I think that, especially as American Christians, we kind of have a hard time relating to the kingship of Jesus because we just don't have a lot of experience with monarchies in general. In fact, our our country was startled on the basis of rebelling against a monarchy. So we're pretty proud of ourselves that we don't have that here. 
I think in some ways it undermines our ability to really understand what it means that Jesus is a king. Because that's what he is, right? He's not a president. He's not a prime minister. He's not a governor. There's something really important about the fact that Jesus is a king. So why is it that he doesn't serve in those other roles? Well, for one thing, Jesus doesn't serve at the pleasure of the people. You know, a president is elected. Jesus' authority does not come from the people. Similarly, Jesus has no term limit. His authority is inherited directly from his father, and he reigns forever. That idea, when we think of it in terms of people, starts to kind of scare us. We worry about any one person accumulating too much power. Again, as Americans, I think that makes us a little bit nervous. Because we've seen over and over these examples that when large amounts of authority are mixed with low integrity, really bad things happen. That is not a good mixture. But when you really think about it, wouldn't the ideal setup be maximum authority mixed with very high integrity? Wouldn't you want that kind of ruler? And you'd want them to have all of that power and authority. And that's what we have in Jesus. It's possible with him because he's perfect. He is a benevolent and sinless king. And that's really good news for us as his subjects. We get to benefit from that. So the kingdom of heaven is a very important thing that we should understand. Jesus spent a lot of time talking about the kingdom of heaven, right? He repeats that so often in the New Testament. The kingdom of heaven is like this. The kingdom of heaven is like that. And it's a unique kingdom in many ways because it functions as an upside-down kingdom. Usually when you think of a king, they're going to rule in such a way that benefits themselves. They're the one on top and everything is about them. But rather than ruling in a way that benefits himself, Jesus became a servant. He turned that kingdom concept upside down. Philippians 2.5, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Jesus, as the ultimate king, didn't take advantage of that. He humbled himself. He made himself nothing. He became a servant for us. The last are first, and the first are last in the kingdom of Jesus. It's very different. And only Jesus could do this because he has that ultimate authority and because he is perfect. We could trust no one else but the kind of power that Jesus had as a king. So as we kind of start to wrap up these ideas, I want to share one last thing, and, and then we'll, uh, we'll close it. Typically in the past, when we think about these roles of prophet, priest, and king, they were made very distinct. There wasn't a lot of overlap, and that was purposeful. Once again, the, I think that at least part of the reason for that is that we didn't want any one person having too much uh, power, too much influence. And so a king needed a prophet to hold them accountable. A king needed a prophet to give them the words of God. In the same way, we don't see priests getting real entangled in the everyday governing of people. You know, God made it clear the priests couldn't even own land. They had a very specific role to fill, and God wanted them to focus on that. So there wasn't that overlap where we saw any one person fulfilling multiple 
roles like Jesus did. There were some checks and balances on the power. No one man could fill all those things perfectly except for Jesus. Only Jesus could perfectly fulfill all three roles at the same time. And in addition to filling all three roles at the same time, he did it better than anyone else. So to review, Jesus is a prophet, but he's not just a prophet. He does share the word of God, but he himself is the word. That's a blessing for us. Jesus is a priest, but he's not just any priest. He is the great high priest who himself is our perfect sacrifice. And Jesus is not just a king. He is king of kings and lord of lords. Thank God that we have Jesus who does it all better than we ever could. So with all of that in mind, let's finish our our service together here by worshiping our prophet, priest, and king. Savior.